Well, good morning once again, Hillcrest family. A special welcome to everybody that's viewing in right now online, wherever you may be, in our online community, Facebook Live, all over the country, and even some from other parts of the world. And a special good morning to those of you over at our Spanish Trail campus. We love you all so much and are so thankful to be able to be with you, even if it's via video. Let's welcome our Spanish Trail brothers and sisters in here at Nine Mile. God bless you guys. We love you and praying for you even as you worship this morning. All of us together are taking our Bibles now and we're coming to the 20th chapter of the book of Acts as we continue to wind down our Sent series in which we're looking at these fantastically great missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and his cohorts, seeing how churches are being planted in what was then, of course, the uttermost part of the world and how so many are coming to faith in Christ in cities and communities that were filled with idolatry at one point are now becoming uh, uh, consumed with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and what a wonderful journey this has been. We'll be several weeks um, uh, still in it up to holiday time. Then after Thanksgiving, we'll turn our attention to Advent. But this has been a wonderful two years in the book of Acts, and um, we will have preached almost every word of it. And I'm so thankful to be able to have the Word of God. I don't know how preachers do it, where they try to make everything up on their own apart from the Word. You know, there's a lifetime, lifetime's worth of material in this book to unpack. And I've said many times, I'm pretty sure that most of y'all are not really all that interested in what I've got to say, but you're very interested in what God has to say. Amen? And that's why we stay closely tethered to the Word of God. And we're in Acts chapter 20 this morning, finishing a message that we began last week on the ministry of encouragement. How many of you need to be encouraged this morning? I certainly need to be encouraged. It's one of the most important gifts that God gives to the church, and that's because everybody I know needs to be patted on the back from time to time. We need to be bucked up. We need to be encouraged. We need to have someone speak words of life into us or do good deeds that encourage us. Encouragement has been called the oxygen of the soul, and I believe that that's true, man. When you don't have oxygen, life, you're just sucking wind in life. But the reality is that when you're encouraged, then you've got uh, power and strength that comes into your life and you're able to accomplish great things and you need encouragement in order to grow spiritually. So encouragement is something everybody in the church needs to receive. And can I just say it to everybody in this morning, uh, here this morning, encouragement is something that everybody in the, need, in the house needs to learn how to give, amen. You say, well, I don't have the spiritual gift of encouragement. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care whether you have the spiritual gift of giving or not. You're still supposed to give. I don't care if you have the spiritual gift of evangelism or not. You're still supposed to be an evangelist. You're still supposed to share your faith and tell others what the Lord has done for you. And the same is true with encouragement. There is a spiritual gift of encouragement, but you need not have it in order to learn how to encourage Others. In fact, I think that was true with the Apostle Paul. I think the Apostle Paul was by nature a prophet. He had the gift of prophecy and he had the gift of teaching. And I think he utilized those gifts. But the thing about people who have the gift of prophecy is they tend to be very blunt. They can be abrasive and they tend not to care what other people think about what they say. And so Paul had to learn how to be an encourager. And that's part of the reason I think that the Lord first paired him with a man named Barnabas. 
who was very unlike the apostle Paul. Barnabas' name had encouragement bound up in it, son of encouragement. And how wonderful that he had the gift of encouragement because every time you see Barnabas in Scripture, he's encouraging somebody, giving money to the church, supporting the apostle Paul, taking him by the hand, being there for him, risking his neck for him. And so I think Paul learned much from Barnabas. And we see that as Paul continues to go on through these three missionary journeys. He's becoming more and more of a very capable encourager. Here in Acts chapter 20, there are three vignettes that you see from start to finish that demonstrate how Paul, and by extension the church itself, was ministering encouragement. Now we looked at the first two of these if you were here last Sunday, but for those who were not here, or for the sake of those who have short memories, which is 99% of everybody in the house, um, let's just very briefly review them. First of all, we talked about the encouragement of giving. A timely subject, I don't time these things, but we are in a giving season at Hillcrest, of course, more now really than ever before, meager resources, but lots of opportunity to give them to different places in order to be a blessing. And how you give is important, Um, and how you direct your giving is important, but what's even more important is you learn to be a giver because everybody in the house of the Lord is blessed and encouraged when God's people learn to give. Paul is winding down his third missionary journey, and he's got his sights back on Jerusalem. He's going to head back to Jerusalem, and he wants to be there by the subsequent spring in order to be able to make it in time for the Feast of Pentecost But before he heads back east, he heads west first. He goes back across the Aegean to minister to the churches that he'd already established in Macedonia and Greece. And part of why he's going over there, if I can say it this way, is to engage in a capital fundraising campaign. It's the first capital campaign that you find in the Bible, and it's to help ameliorate the needs of hungry, starving Uh, depressed and discouraged believers in the church at Jerusalem. The church members of the Jerusalem church, primarily Jewish, were undergoing a great time of famine, and they had been for several years. And as a result of their faith, many of them were also suffering economic deprivation because of persecution as a result of their faith. Paul knew this. And he begins to think, as led by the Spirit of God, what a wonderful thing for these new Gentile believers to show solidarity with their Jewish believer friends in Jerusalem, people that they did not know, people that they had never met, likely would never meet. What a wonderful act of solidarity and unity for them to participate in their relief. So Paul starts in Macedonia, works his way south down to Athens, then to Corinth and maybe even some other areas around, visiting those churches and raising funds to be an encouragement to those who are in need. And two of the greatest chapters of the Bible about giving, 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9, come out of this fundraising effort because Paul uses that time in order to testify that out of their incredible poverty, not out of their abundance, because these were poor believers. But out of their incredible poverty, they welled up 
in extreme generosity, giving not out of what they had, but even out of what they didn't have, thinking no thought about themselves, but of brothers and sisters that they had not even met, and they were blessed by their giving, and those who were the recipients of their gifts were blessed by their giving. Jesus said it, we still believe it. It is more blessed to what? Give than to receive. And so there's encouragement in and through the church that comes when God's people learn to be generous. Secondly, we talked about the encouragement of presence, the wonderful ministry of presence. I'm telling you, people blew up over this concept last week, and yet in a good way blew up, in a wonderful way, because oftentimes we don't hear about the importance of the ministry of presence, just being there, kind of like these pictures of our church being there in the Panama City area, in the Big Bend area. Presence is incredibly powerful. And if you know somebody that's hurting, you don't call the preacher, you show up. You show up. We need the church to be the church when it comes to the ministry of presence. Now, I'll show up. I can't be there at everything. I can't be present for everything, not in a group this large and unwieldy. But the Lord knows I do my best, but I'll try to be there for the big stuff. But everybody needs to be there, and we need to learn to let others be present and minister the gospel of grace into our lives. This is the thing about Paul. What do you see Paul doing in all of these missionary journeys? He goes back, goes back, goes back. It's not one and done. He keeps going back to all these places. He visited those four churches of South Galatia probably four or five times in these three missionary journeys. He keeps going back because he recognizes his presence is vital because by his presence, he ministers encouragement. And where there is ministry of encouragement, that is an incentive for people to continue to grow spiritually. So his presence in those places matters. Our presence among the people of God still matters, particularly when people are going through very difficult times. We need to learn that in times of financial loss, in times of personal loss, in times of bereavement, in times of difficulty, we need to learn the ministry of presence and to learn to be there. Well, that's kind of a very brief summary of what we talked about last week. Everybody with me say amen. Now, let me give you a third way that the church ministers encouragement, and that is through what we've done this morning, the encouragement of worship. Paul's capital campaign through Macedonia and Greece is now concluded by the time we get to verse 7 of Acts chapter 20. And he's now ready to begin his journey back to the east again, to Jerusalem. And as he does, he's got a knapsack full of money that he's carrying with him. Now, if you remember from the first part of Acts chapter 20, Luke takes a few minutes to identify and introduce us to all of these traveling buddies of Paul. You remember all those names we looked at last week? He had so-and-so from this church and so-and-so from this city. And there's, you know, seven, eight, or nine of those guys that are traveling with Paul. And many of those probably were personal representatives of many of these Gentile churches that gave. They were actually going to go with Paul to Jerusalem. And Paul's going to say, okay, here is Sopater. He's, he's from the church at so-and-so. And Here's Luke, he's from the church at Philippi, and so he's going to have standing with him before the church at Jerusalem, all these Gentile representatives who are with him, notwithstanding the fact that it's good to have a bunch of beefy boys with you when you're carrying a knapsack full of money on a boat. Somebody say amen. 
And so he's got boys traveling with him, and they've stopped along the way in various places because you didn't get anywhere quick back in those days. And one of the places that they stop along the way for what would amount to a full week of ministry is the port city of Troas there in Asia, just about 200 miles north of Ephesus. And as he stops there in Troas, he's just going to have a wonderful time with them that culminates in a mighty worship service where lots of stuff happens. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 7. Everybody there and ready to read? Amen. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. Try doing that at Hillcrest. See how far you get. There were many lamps in the upper room where we gathered. And a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. He's a Baptist preacher. Amen. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, taking him in his arms. He said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted, which if we can say that positive, they were super stoked. This is the word of God, and let all who agree say amen. Now, the last phrase is significant because, again, it mirrors what's said in the first verse of chapter 20, and so it acts as kind of a bookend. They were not a little comforted. In other words, they were greatly comforted. And that word comforted, is from the same word that we get our word encouraged. And so to be comforted is by nature to be encouraged. It's the same word. This is a very familiar passage, and it revolves around really the raising of a young man named Eutychus from the dead. This is one of only six instances in the entire New Testament where somebody was certifiably dead that came back to life, if you count the resurrection of Jesus Christ in those six. Jesus raised three people from the dead in his ministry, Peter raised one person from the dead, and here Paul raises another person from the dead. Now, if I'm at a worship service, somebody dies, and then they get raised up from the dead, I mean, I'm just saying that's just enough to comfort and encourage me. If somebody gets raised from the dead, that in and of itself is enough to encourage you. But I think the people were also encouraged by everything that was happening upstairs in that third floor room that night in Troas. Paul had been there for a week, and this would be the last night. Luke tells us that he's going to catch a boat. In fact, they're going to catch a boat. Luke is now with them again because everything goes back to we. It's now first-person plural. So the author of Acts, Luke, is now along for the ride. He'd been with Paul in his second missionary journey all the way to Philippi. And then everything in Acts from the time Paul left Philippi to go to Thessalonica goes back to they. So presumably they left Luke in Philippi to continue the church there. And all during this long time of the end of the second journey and through the totality of the third, Luke was not with them. 
But Luke joins them again now, and he's writing, we were all together now, and they've been in Troas for an entire week, and now it's the last day, which happens to be the first day of the week. And Paul does not forsake the assembling of himself together with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ at Troas. I'm telling you, it's amazing to me how little value so many self-proclaimed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ place on what we're doing here today. The gathering together on the first day of the week of the people of God known as the church. In fact, just on Friday, I was in the pharmacy waiting for a flu shot and I had my phone out and I was reading some Christianity Today articles while I was waiting on the needle to come. And I was reading the latest surveys coming out of Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research that did a joint survey just released a week or so ago that had a bunch of stuff in there that's eye-popping and revealing about what self-proclaimed Christians actually think. And most of it, as you can imagine, is not good because it's not biblical. People just make stuff up about what they believe, including six out of every 10, 60% of people that identify themselves as Christian confess that they don't think church is important. Six out of 10, which explains why most self-proclaimed Christians, or many of them, do forsake the assembling of themselves together. They don't think church is important. They don't think connection to the church is vital to have a growing faith, which indicates to me that they don't have a growing faith because they don't have any idea what the Bible says. They're just making that up. If they read the Bible carefully, in fact, they wouldn't have that understanding if they attended church at Hillcrest. Somebody say amen. Because they would know through the Bible what the scriptures say, that church is important. Even Jesus went to synagogue for crying out loud. And he was God in the flesh. He needed the people of God and the people of God needed him and we need one another. Here you have Paul gathering together with the church at Troas for, as you can tell, what amounted to a really long worship service. A whole lot longer than an hour and 15 minutes you're going to be in the room this morning. All night long. There's a song that says all night long. I should sing it, but I won't. They were literally there. This is apparently a Sunday night service that literally lasted until the sun came up. That's how they were vitally connected to what was going on. And the end result is a church that's encouraged. It was encouraged because it was a church at worship. There's a lot that I could say about the encouragement of worship. In fact, I've done a whole sermon series in years past just on the ministry of worship and the various aspects of worship. So there's more than I've got time to say this morning, but just sticking with the text, let's look at three sources of encouragement that come through worship. First, there's the encouragement that comes through fellowship. Through fellowship. One thing you notice right off is that this gathering of the church takes place on the first day of the week, which is today. This is the first day of the week, Sunday. And this is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, reference to Christians meeting together Not on the traditional Sabbath, which is Saturday, but on the first day of the week, Sunday. And that change from 
traditional Sabbath worship to first day of the week worship as the principal corporate worship day came as a result, of course, of the emphasis on and the impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why do we worship on Sunday? Because that's the day Christ was risen from the dead. And that became the habit of the church from its earliest days. And it happens here on a Sunday, the first day of the week. In fact, Sunday would later become known as the Lord's Day, as it's reflected in Revelation chapter 1, when John the apostle has his vision from heaven. He confesses that he had that vision on the Lord's Day, and that was about the year 90 A.D., somewhere around 50 or 55 years removed from uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it had become known as the Lord's Day, the day of Jesus' resurrection. And every time the church came together there on the first day of the week, they were reminding themselves and they were reminding the community around them that the tomb was empty and that Jesus Christ is alive. Can I say it today? I believe the tomb is still empty, and I believe Jesus is alive, and I believe Jesus Christ is Lord. And I believe that the first day of the week is a fitting time for people just like us in the year 2018 to continue to come together in order to witness to and to testify of and to celebrate the greatest single event that has happened in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I believe that. So be reminded of it. There should never be a first day of the week, the Lord's Day, whether you're here in Pensacola, traveling outside of Pensacola, whatever the case may be, where you don't wake up reminded this is an exciting day, not just because we're gathering together for church, for it's more than a social event. This is an exciting day because Jesus Christ is Lord and he is risen from the dead. But as important as the when of our gathering is the what that the gathering like this actually represents. We call it fellowship. And only born-again believers can have it. I mean, even a married couple where one is born again and one is not, they're in a relationship, but they are not able to have fellowship, even though they're married, because fellowship is something that only believers can experience. The word means to have in common well, you've got to have something spiritually in common with another person in order to fellowship with them. And what do we have in common? Well, we celebrate together. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ together with me, we celebrate that we have a common Savior and that we've experienced a common baptism and that we experience a common connection in terms of what our mission. We're all under a common great commission. We all have the same purpose. We're all headed in the same direction. We're all looking forward one day to life everlasting and what the Bible calls a new heaven and a new earth. All of us have all of those things in common, and that's what we celebrate today. The sharing of fellowship has been something that the church has been experiencing from day one. If you go all the way back to our beginnings of the study in Acts, Acts chapter 2, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, the scripture says that the first church at Jerusalem devoted themselves to what? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the things that they had in common, to the breaking of bread 
and to prayers. And so that's what the church did. They gathered together. They ate together. They prayed together. They were taught together. And all of that celebration of togetherness is what we call fellowship. And when true fellowship takes place, the end result is growth. Growth of the individual follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and the growth of the church because we grow better when we grow together. Paul would introduce his letter to the Philippians in that way. I thank God every time I remember you, always and in every way keeping you in my prayers for the first day until now, thanking you for the fellowship, for your fellowship in the gospel from the time I began my ministry in you until this very present day. And that's why you need the church and why the church needs you. That's one reason why we ought not treat it lightly because there's things that can only happen in this place at this time that cannot, you cannot replicate anywhere else, any place else, what we've done in this place today. That's why you ought not treat it lightly and that's why the Bible says it. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't forsake the fellowship that happens among God's people. Everybody with me? Amen. So there's the encouragement of fellowship. Then there's the encouragement of the Lord's Supper. The encouragement of the Lord's Supper. In fact, one of the things you miss when you forsake the church and its gatherings is not only fellowship, but the Lord's Supper. Another source of encouragement in worship, we're told here that the church gathered together to break bread. That's almost certainly a reference to the Lord's Supper. Back then, it appears that they had, they did two things in the early church. They had a full meal, and then they concluded the full meal with a ceremonial meal called the Lord's Supper. And that's what Jesus did in the upper room the night that, uh, before he was uh, betrayed, the night he was arrested, and the night that uh, before his crucifixion. They had the full Passover meal. We call that the Last Supper. And then Jesus had a ceremonial meal at the end. We call that the Lord's Supper, a a remembrance service, a memorial service. And that's what's taking place here in this upper room as well. Apparently, the early church took the Lord's Supper every time they gathered, every week. And many churches still do that. There's not a thing wrong with doing that. As a church gets larger, taking the Lord's Supper every week becomes kind of a challenge because of how much we have to prepare and the amount of time it takes to do it in the service itself because unlike them, we are on a clock, unfortunately, and you're looking at your watch. I cannot go, listen, I do good to go past noon, much less past midnight. And so we do it a little bit less frequently. The Bible does not tell us that we have to do it every week, but the model of the early church is. But I can tell you what, I'm more predisposed to do it more frequently as opposed to less frequently. You're in a lot of churches, they don't take it four times a year, and I don't think that's enough. And so we've got it scheduled two more times between now and the end of the year. And uh, when we do take it, we experience the same encouragement that they experienced because we're reminded of the suffering of Christ, of the agony of Christ, of the death of Christ. So you take the Lord's Supper in connection with what the first day of the week represents as it's connected to the resurrection and when we take the Lord's Supper, we got everything going on. We've got a celebration of the death of Christ. We've got a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. In fact, inherent in the Lord's Supper itself is a celebration of the resurrection. 
and the soon coming again of Jesus Christ because Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death for how long? Until he what? Until he comes, which is a reminder that Christ is not still dead, that he's very much alive and one day is coming again. So worship encourages us through the common fellowship that we enjoy, through the Lord's Supper and the reminder of the sacrifice of Christ and that because he died in our place and rose again on our behalf, we can have great joy and live with enthusiasm and encouragement. And then finally, we take encouragement and worship from the preaching of the word, from the preaching of the word of God. I know it's kind of a bit self-serving coming from me, but I listen, I couldn't imagine being part of a church where the word of the living God was not preached in all of its fullness. I mean, I couldn't imagine that. I think it'd be a waste of time, quite frankly. Oh, there's preaching happening in churches all over the world, make no mistake. But have you ever noticed that sometimes it's the preaching of politics or the preaching of social issues or the preaching of public opinion or personal philosophy? Or maybe the Bible might be referenced on the front end and you might have a scripture read at the beginning, but then the preacher goes his own way and never comes back to the word of God, never explains it, never applies it. It's just there almost as a pseudo support system for whatever it is he may have on his mind. One story, one anecdote, one right after another. And you know what the result of that is? A weak, anemic church. A weak, anemic church. What did Paul tell Timothy? Preach the word. Not politics, not social issues, not public opinion. Amen. Preach the word of God. Rebuke with it. Exhort with it. Encourage with it. But make sure you're grounded in the word of God. And I'm just wondering, where are the preachers of the word anymore? That great country preacher Vance Habner out of the North Carolina Hills used to say that the modern church has become nothing more than a nonprofit institution. And he spelled prophet P R O P H E T, as in, where are the prophets? There are none, <clears throat> or at least not many, much anymore. But Paul was a word centered gospel preacher in every respect. In fact, he's going to leave Troas after this meeting and he's going to stop at Miletus on a detour on his way back to Jerusalem and call for the elders of Ephesus to come to him because he knew that he would probably never see them again. And they all come. They make the short trip down to where he is. And you remember one of the things that he told them down in verse 18 of this very chapter? He gathers those elders together and he says, you yourselves know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And that, more than anything else, is what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs, I think, more than anything else today. Somebody that will stand up and tell them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, not based on what they believe, but based on what God has already said in his word. That's what we need more than anything else right now. And Paul is doing that here on the third floor of this house in Troas on a Sunday night 
service. Now, that's not a Sunday night service in addition to a Sunday morning service because most of these people have probably been working all day. And that's probably why they're having a Sunday night service. And apparently, it was a service that went on until after midnight. And there are two different words to describe the kind of communication that Paul is having among them. The first is just talk. The Bible says he talked to them, which probably is definitive of what I'm doing to you. I'm talking to you, and you don't get to stand up and talk back. You can try that, but security will grab you and take you out in the name of Christ. <laughs> so it's a monologue. It's a one-way directive, and that's what he's doing for a little bit of time. <clears throat> he's got his audience, his people there, and he's communicating to them. And then later on, after they had stopped and shared a meal together, Paul gathered them back together, and the Bible uses a different word. It says he conversed with them, which was probably more of a free and open dialogue, kind of like what you do in your connect groups. Everybody with me? So if you come to church for the better part of a three-hour, four-hour morning at Hillcrest, you're going to get that same thing. You're going to get a spokesperson of the Lord talking with you, and then you're going to have uh, the opportunity to converse together in a free and open dialogue where you share the Scriptures one with another. And here in Troas, in between those two, Paul talking with them and Paul conversing with them, in between the two, not much really happened except like a guy falling out of a window and dying and then Paul going down and embracing him and bringing him back to life. Oh, but church is a boring place, amen? So you got some very unusual stuff happening here. In fact, I started to entitle this message today that sleeping in church can kill you. That was almost the title of the message. Or beware the danger of sleeping in church. Now, all of us know the challenges from time to time You've had a long night or whatever the case might be and you're really tired. I was watching on TV some time back, Adrian Rogers preaching at Bellevue. Y'all heard Dr. Adrian Rogers preach, Prince of Preachers. And uh, I was watching him preach and I noticed they kept the people in the choir loft behind him and there was a guy sitting in the front row of the choir loft. <laughs> I mean, the whole time. I'm surprised they even put that one on the air because that guy... He, he could not stay awake. And I'm thankful that they didn't because I was a young preacher when I saw that and I walked away and I told Judy, I said, here's the thing. I'm not going to worry about people sleeping in church because if they'll go to sleep on Adrian Rogers, they will sleep on antibody. <laughs> so we get this and it's easy to see how it would happen there. And they're up on the third floor, hot air what? Hot air rises. Not only that, it's at night. So what's burning in the room? Oil lamps all over the place, sucking the oxygen out of the room. So they're up on a third floor, candles burning. It's warm. It's hot. Hot air's rising. Here's a young buck's probably been going all day, somewhere between 8 and 14 years old probably. And he drifts off to sleep, goes over to the windowsill, try to get some air, falls sound asleep, and then down he goes falling to his death, and down everybody else goes to the ground to find out what just happened. He's dead. Paul just covers him up like an Old Testament prophet would do, and he prays over him, and life 
by the Spirit of God comes back into him. And then guess what they do, right? They go back in and pick up right where they go off. Paul just looks around and says, hey, anybody hungry? I mean, we're Baptists, right? Let's go in. I've heard we got food. Let's go in and eat. And they go in and they eat. And then they go right back to the Word of God, the preaching of the precious Word of the living God, what Dr. W.A. Chris will call the highest order of worship. And this is one of the reasons, brothers and sisters, why the pulpit, regardless of what it looks like in our tradition, is in the very center of the room. It's at the center of the room because of this book right here being the central order of worship because the preaching of the Bible is important because the mere presence of the Bible does not uh, ensure that the word of the living God is going to be communicated to anybody. In fact, you can go into a lot of churches and the Bible, there'll be Bibles everywhere. They just won't be used. So the presence of the Bible is great, but it doesn't communicate the message of the Bible. God has a plan for the message of his word to be proclaimed. And it's not by angels, although God could command a legion of angels to communicate his word if he wanted to do that. God doesn't write it in the stars or draw it in the clouds, although he's certainly artistic enough and creative enough where he could do that if he wanted to, but he doesn't. No, the Bible says it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those who would believe. And that's why preaching is always important. It's always relevant because it's God's prescriptive plan to do two things, to save the lost and to strengthen the saved. And let me just say, the church will only be as strong as its preaching is strong. And that's why every church should want a man of God who's committed to the preaching of the Word of God, someone who's ensured to be given enough time in order to feed a steady and challenging diet of the Word of God to the very people of God. Because when the whole counsel of God is preached, the saints of God are fed, the lost apart from God are challenged, and though they may not necessarily always be affirmed by the preaching of the, go- of the gospel, because the gospel pierces and the gospel cuts where sin is present, I can say that where the preaching of the gospel happens, all people are ultimately encouraged because the will of God and the truth of God is being revealed in the midst of the people of God whom he's created in his divine image. That's why it's an encouragement to all of us. So there you have it. The ministry of encouragement. We're encouraged when God's people give. We're encouraged by the ministry of presence by God's people. And we're encouraged when God's people gathered together, worshiping him in spirit and in truth, celebrating the blessing of fellowship, of communion, and of the eternal blessing of God's wonderful word. This is the word of God. And let all who agree say, Amen and amen.